Well, Noel means Christmas. What does Christmas mean? I recently came across a short essay by C.S. Lewis, What Christmas Means to Me. And Lewis says that there are three different kinds of Christmas. He talks about the religious Christmas, which is rightly important to Christians. He talks about merry-making Christmas, which he says he enjoys as much as anyone, as, as do I. And then he says there is the commercial racket of buying, shopping, and gift-giving. And that's really what his essay, really his rant, is all about. That third one, that racket of buying and giving and gift-exchanging. Here's what he says. Most of it is involuntary. The modern rule is that anyone can force you to give him a present by sending you a quite unprovoked present of his own. It's almost blackmail. <laughs> Who has not heard the wail of despair and indeed resentment when at the last moment, just as everyone hoped that the nuisance was over for one more year, the unwanted gift from Mrs. Busy, whom we hardly remember, flops unwelcomed through the letterbox and back to the dreadful shops one of us has to go. Well, who knew that C.S. Lewis, famous as he was for imagination and love for children, was such a bah humbug when it came to gift giving? It's slightly more understandable when we remember that he wrote that as a bachelor, an old bachelor, uh, a well-known bachelor. Surely he received more gifts than uh, he should have felt obliged to return, but, but I'm sure some of us can relate. I'm sure many of us in this room at some point in this month have said something like, give me a break related to Christmas. And if you haven't yet, perhaps you will tonight with family or tomorrow. <laughs> but in Matthew chapter 2, we see gift giving at its best. And we also see Christmas resentment and bitterness at its worst. Matthew chapter 2. If you have a Bible with you tonight, would you turn with me there? If you don't, no worries. Much of what we'll read will be up on the screen behind me. In Matthew 2, the trimmings and trappings of Christmas are all stripped away. In fact, it's not even exactly a Christmas story though almost all of us would think of it as such. It happened sometime after the birth of Jesus, perhaps a year or more after the birth of Jesus, even though it's a famous quote-unquote Christmas story to us. Its point is about the implications of Christmas. What about Christmas a year later, not when you're back at Christmas? What about Christmas when it's a year and a half later? Matthew 2 isn't about the experience of Christmas, but about the implications of it. It doesn't just tell us what happened when Jesus was born, but what it means. Listen to Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? 
For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream to not return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray and ask for God's help to understand this and apply this to our lives. Father, we thank you for the coming of Jesus once again. We praise you for it. Lord, we want to live in light of it. We want to believe it to be true in our innermost being and we want to be changed by it. Help us to understand our need for a savior like this. Help us, Lord, to embrace a king who comes into this world. Help us to seek him and to worship him. Help us, Lord, to do that from this passage in your word tonight. Amen. Well, from this passage, I have three points about the story itself. And then at the end of this time together, studying God's word, I'll have three questions for us to ask ourselves by way of application. Three points about the story, then three quick questions toward the end. As for the story itself, this is called the visit of the wise men. It's the story of the magi or the wise men, and it's referred to that often like that because, well, because the wise men really are at the center of the story. And you say, well, I thought Jesus is at the center of this story. And surely he is. That's a given. That would be true for any scene in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. They're all about Jesus. They just have some other characters along the way. And with this story, it's unique for the camera staying on the wise men all the way through. So the first of three points from the passage The wise men seek the king. They seek the king. Who were these wise men from the east? Well, for starters, let's clear the air. It doesn't say there were three of them, and they weren't kings. We don't know how many there were. There could have been two. There could have been a dozen. Church history is sort of latched on to three because there are three gifts at the end, but that doesn't make it explicit. They weren't kings. They were magi or wise men. 
And that can be a diverse group. That might mean that they were magicians. Some magi were magicians. That's why we get the word magician from that root magi. Some of them were philosophers, professional wise men, advisors to kings. Daniel in the Old Testament is said to be a wise man like this for kings in Babylon. Some of them were astronomers and or astrologists. Do you remember how to keep those straight? I often don't remember how to keep those straight, but I do for this message, I think. Uh, They were sometimes astronomers, guessing the future from the stars, Uh, but they were also more scientific than astrologers today. They were more like astrologists in their own day. Thankfully, in our day, there's a clear distinction between astronomers and astrologists. But in their day, it wasn't so clear. They were star-tracking experts who were also interested in predicting the future. Don't overly vilify them. Don't either overly vindicate them. These were pagans. And yet they were expert students in studying the stars and trying to live in light of what they saw. And they were also willing to use prophecies of the Jews in their consideration of matters. They were liberal in the best sense of the term. They were liberally educated, liberal in their uh, thinking and study. And so thousands of years, uh, sorry, 700 years before the birth of Christ, Jews were in Babylon with their scrolls of the Old Testament. Yes, many of them came back some 70 years later, but some of them actually stayed in Babylon. Many of them might have been there still at the time of the birth of Jesus, having had influence on those in Babylon, these magi for these many years. And regardless of who had stayed, they had had what they needed from the likes of Daniel, who were clearly there. And so men like these magi would have had Hebrew scrolls of the Old Testament and would have willingly studied them, and they would have known about prophecies like this in Numbers 24. 24 verse 17, Balaam there says, I see him, referring to one to come, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. One from Jacob shall exercise dominion. So they were watching stars with the scriptures in hand, and they've come, like the Jews of their time, they've come to await for a great king to come out of Judah. And then one day they see something that is so momentous and so unexplainable that it is actionable. They, they act on it. They see the star and they seek a king. What did they see in the sky? What was this star? Some have suggested it was a supernova, a very bright star. Others have suggested that this was an unusual alignment of planets. I guess something weird happens with Jupiter and Saturn every now and then. Some have said that this must be a supernatural thing. And of course, we Christians believe that God can put a light anywhere he wants to. 
And this one seems to move in a way that a star doesn't. So some have said perhaps it was an angel. Angels are even sometimes called stars in Scripture. The most recent suggestion is also the most thoroughly studied and articulated in a new book, a wonderful new book called The Great Christ Comet by Colin Nichol. It just came out this year. He argues that, of course, it's a comet. Comet, not a star. They wouldn't have the categories we do, and so we shouldn't be surprised they would call it a star. But he says this is like a, a, a comet like Halley's was or, or like Hale Bop. And that would give some explanation for its rising in verse 2, and then it's reappearing in verse 9, and it says, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. A, a star can't rest over a house. But a comet with a tail could, in conjunction with the Earth's axis, actually appear to be pointing to a specific house. And if Colin Nichol is correct, that doesn't mean that Matthew, T Matthew 2 is just telling us something very natural and natural alone. It's, it's not just coincidence, it's not just good luck that they happened to see a comet pointing to a house and it was the right house. Remember that God can work naturally or supernaturally. And sometimes when he works through natural means for his ends and purposes, it is as spectacular as anything supernatural. So in the death of Jesus, that's a natural event, not a, mir not a miracle. But if you know the story, you can't help but see the orchestration of God in the political leaders and the religious leaders all leading up to Jesus' death. Yes, the resurrection was supernatural. God can work in either way. And we don't know in this case whether this was supernatural or God was orchestrating a comet at this time with these men for his purposes, but we must insist that he was orchestrating it. And so they see it and they head out. They head out to Jerusalem, the Jewish capital city. It's a 900-mile journey if they were coming from Babylon, which they probably were. That would have taken weeks, if not a month or, or two. This would have been no small group. It would not have been just wise men, never mind whether there were two or 12 or 20 wise men. They would have had an entourage with them. They would have had guards with them. They would have had to carry the food for this journey with them. No small amount of preparation would have to go into uh, getting ready to go. And, and no small amount of effort would be taken up in the journey itself. And no small footprint would be made in Jerusalem when they arrive. They'd look different, they'd be noticeable, and it would signal something, especially with their question they're asking once they arrive. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These wise men seek the king. They see the star, 
They left home. They're seeking the king, and they inquire now about him. So secondly, the wise men startle a king. In this story, the wise men seek the king, but then they startle a king. Not the king, but a king. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. That word in the original for troubled there is is more than it might appear in English. It means being jolted, shocked, terrified. It's a word that people use when they think they've seen a ghost. And why would Herod be troubled regarding wise men coming from the east and inquiring about the birth of the king of the Jews? Well, for one, that was his title, king of the Jews. And he wasn't really even a Jew. Here's one coming who is the king of the Jews. Herod had connived his way to this regional ruling position by kissing up to the Romans. And once there on the throne, he was actually quite successful, humanly speaking. He was tireless in his ambition, and he was ruthless in his resolve. This is Herod who rebuilt and added on to the temple in remarkable ways, breathtaking ways. He created seaports. He built cities and fortresses and stadiums. He kept that tense relationship between the Jews and the Romans at at an even keel most of the time. He had 10 wives, and they were pretty fertile. So he had a lot of sons. That's a good thing if you're a king, but it can also lead to trouble. So his sons were constantly vying for the right to the throne. They were constantly attempting murder on each other, trying to poison each other, trying to get this one out of the way, then that one out of the way. And their growing jealousy for the throne made Herod increasingly paranoid about his own need to protect the throne before he dies. And so he executed three sons over the course of years. He executed his favorite wife one day. Then he executed her mom. Insert mother-in-law joke here. Even Caesar Augustus once joked that he'd rather be Herod's pig than one of his sons. So yeah, an entourage of wise men from the east showing up and asking about the newborn king of the Jews because they had seen a star. You can imagine how terrified Herod would be. In these days, it was widely believed that a a new star in the sky meant that an old king had died and a new great king had been born. Late in life, Herod hears about all this and he's terrified. But not just Herod, all Jerusalem with him, it says in verse 3. Why? Why was all Jerusalem troubled by this news. Well, again, there's the entourage of foreign people. That's peculiar and unsettling. And Herod being so firm and fierce in his leadership, no doubt the citizens must have been nervously wondering, what's he going to do about this? 
Is he going to fly off the handle and create a bloodbath here in Jerusalem? What will that mean with the Romans and the Babylonians and us? Well, well, Herod didn't fly off the handle. Verse 4, he assembled all the chief priests and scribes, the religious leaders of those days. He wanted to inquire where the Christ was to be born. And so they told him. This is like Bible trivia for 100, Alex. They know this. It's easy. Micah 5.2. Micah, written 700 or more years before Jesus. And here they quote it in Matthew 2, verse 6. This is what it says in the prophet. You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. If you go back and read that, that verse from Micah, in its context, there's even more information about this one who will come. Listen. In Micah 5, it says, You, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel. That's where, that's where Matthew's quote ends. Micah goes on, Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he, God, shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. You see how big of a deal this is. Micah was predicting an eternal ruler to come forth, to be born in Bethlehem, little old Bethlehem. And he would shepherd the people, not just rule them, but shepherd them. And he would do it in the majesty of God. And he would be great to the ends of the earth. We're not talking about a, re a regional leader here, a regional king. We're talking about the global one. The religious leaders hear about the star, see the visit of the wise men. They quote Micah 5. And what did they do next? It doesn't say. It seems as though they did nothing. They certainly did not go with the wise men to Bethlehem. You'd think they know this. Someone says, the king of the Jews has been born because we saw that star. What does it mean? Where is he? They know the answer of where. And they don't care to go. And if you think that is just unthinkable, well, you don't know too many clergy. <laughs> I know lots of clergy uh, that know what the Bible says and really aren't interested in running out to meet Jesus. They seem to be knowledgeable and yet indifferent, apathetic. They do nothing, but Herod does something. He has the city of the birth, Bethlehem. He just needs to have the precise place. And so verse 7, he summoned the wise men secretly and he ascertained from them, really he picked at them until they could give them the exact time when the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Of course, we know it's all a sham, isn't it? 
He's duplicitous. He's feigning worship with only murder on his mind. This is the guy who takes out sons and wives and mother-in-laws. We know how the story ends. We already read verse 12 that, that the wise men were warned in a dream to not return to Herod, and so they didn't. Most of us know what is next in the story in verse 13 and following, how Herod eventually was so desperate when the wise men never returned that he had all the male children in Bethlehem and in the surrounding region from two years old and younger. He had them all killed. This is as old as the woman's seed and the serpent. In Genesis 3, God says, the serpent will go after the heel of the woman's seed, but his heel will crush his head, the serpent's head. This was the sum of King David's experience. It's, fit, it's fitting for David's life, and it's even more fitting for the life of Jesus, the son of David. In Psalm 2, David wrote, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs at their futile scheming and maneuvering. That was true in the case of David when God protected him, though he was constantly under threat. And it's even more true in the case of Jesus, who was constantly under threat. The people were constantly taking counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed one. And despite all of Herod's maneuvering and scheming against the Christ in this story, God keeps moving the story right along moving the story right along to his son, right along to the king, right along to the announcement, right along to the revelation of his coming and to his worship and to the gathering of the nations to himself. So verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, look is really the word. The star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to the until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Wise men seek the king. Wise men also startle a king. Thirdly, the wise men see the king. Verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They didn't just see. They fell down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures. They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They worshipped him. Remember, he's eternal. This is God. Born and yet God. Mysterious, yes, I know. But the Bible tells us this, and it is so whether or not these wise men fully got that Jesus, the baby, was God, by their actions of worshiping him, Matthew is telling us this one is God. When angels are worshiped in scripture, they go, oh, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. I might be scary, I might be impressive, but you don't worship me. We worship the same God. No one's stopping these guys from worshiping here. Matthew doesn't tell us it's wrong. It's not. It's 
how we should all respond. This king is not just the king of the Jews, but king of the world. Remember, Micah 5 said he'll be great to the ends of the earth. And these Babylonian pagan wise men with a bit of scripture and a star in the sky providentially are led to the place of the baby. And they worship. Charles Spurgeon, a a pastor from the 1800s, he remarked on this passage that those who were far off drew near, and those who were near were really far off. Those like Herod, the chief priests and the scribes, but not the wise men from Babylon. This was the plan all along, starting with the promises to Abraham that in him there would be a blessing to all the nations. And that promise was intensifying in the days of the prophets, especially Isaiah. Listen to some bits from Isaiah. Like in chapter 49, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Or chapter 52, all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Or especially in chapter 60 of Isaiah, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Nations shall come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. That's what the wise men do. They come to him. They recognize him. They worship him. And they bring their wealth. They give him gifts. Very costly gifts they give him. We don't know the size of these gifts, but more than likely, this is tens of thousands of dollars of gifts in our day's terms. Of course, God is orchestrating all of it, isn't he? Those prophecies given in Isaiah 700 years before Christ came, the specific promise of Micah that the one who would be the ruler, the king, God's promise, he'd be born in little old Bethlehem, a town of maybe 1,500. Probably almost no one in this room grew up in a town of 1,500 or less. That's Bethlehem. And from there, this time, that star... These people, these scriptures, it's all coming together. God is orchestrating all of it, even the protection of his son. They're told, get out of here. Herod's coming with his men. God will continue to protect his son through the rest of the story of Matthew, all the way up to and through the cross, Jesus' death. That is not when God stopped protecting him. God continued to protect him. He was orchestrating it all. The cross was the plan all along because he's not just a king or a ruler or the Christ or the promised one, but he is a savior. He is a payment for sin. He wasn't just born, but he also died. And he didn't just die, he died for sin, for sinners. Do you believe that? Do you believe he died for your sins? Do you know it to be true? Well, there are three points about this story. Wise men seek the king. They startle a king. Wise men see the king. Now, 
As we wrap this up, just a few closing questions for us by way of application. The first is, who is the true king? In this story, who is the true king? The one with multiple palaces? The great king of the Jews, Herod? What a contrast of two kings we have here between the king of the Jews, so-called, and the true promised king of the Jews, Jesus. You couldn't tell by looking which one was the true king, could you? One, again, living in multiple palaces, proud of all his great accomplishments. A man who can say, kill all the two-year-old boys in this place and in that place and in that place. But he's a propped-up king, only successful in the eyes of human beings. But otherwise, he's pathetic and, and hopeless, and he's desperate to maintain his reign and seek his glory. At the end of his life, he, he assumed that no one would mourn his death. And so he tried to get all the religious leaders in the same place to have them killed so that when he died, there'd be mourning in the land. That's a piece of a human being there, isn't it? But Jesus, the true king, he reigns sacrificially, he rules selflessly, he gives salvation and resurrection and everlasting life. Who's the true king? Is it you or Jesus? So that leads to my second question. How will you respond? How will you respond to his coming? How have you responded? There are several different responses in Matthew 2. You have troubled people who have hitched themselves to their king and forgotten the promises of old of a true coming king. You have hostile Herod. You have those indifferent religious leaders who can speak of the prophecy and go home. And you have the wise men. They seek. They inquire. They keep seeking. They rejoice. They recognize when they get there. They see him. They worship him. They honor him. They give to him. No effort is too great in seeking for and finding the king. Just look at these wise men, what effort they made. Nobody is too far away from this king to get to him. So seek him and find him. No gift is really required in coming to this king, and yet no gift is too costly for him. It's funny, that's paradoxical in Scripture. Coming to Jesus in some ways costs you nothing. In fact, you're not really coming to him if you think you're coming to him, bringing him something in order to get something from him. We Christians sing that there is nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. And yet, here's the paradox, coming to Jesus costs you everything. It changes everything. It's not giving up some things. It's being a different person, having 
someone else besides yourself on the throne. That's tough. That's why Jesus had to say, consider the cost of following me. You'll have to lay down life in order to follow me. That's why Herod would resist it so. And that's why many have done similarly, even today, to resist the king. The third question, why should you believe, seek, and worship this king? Well, there are three testimonies for you in this passage. Consider the spectacular star. How do you explain it? Consider the fulfilled scriptures. Little town of Bethlehem was one of multiple Old Testament scriptures referenced here in Matthew 1 through 3. And Matthew keeps quoting the Old Testament and saying it's being fulfilled He keeps saying, this was God's plan all along. It's happening. See, it said this, this happened. It's God's plan. Consider the fulfilled scriptures. And and third, consider these unusual seekers. Consider these unusual seekers. How do you explain for these guys showing up, wanting to find and worship the king of the Jews, who is the king, actually, of the whole universe? They're an unusual testimony in the story. If you were Matthew and you were making this up, you wouldn't get quasi-magicians, astronomers, astrologists to be your key witnesses and testimonies for the birth of Jesus, would you? I mean, wouldn't you have used Herod, the king, or the religious leaders? You wouldn't use these wise men. But God did use these wise men, and he uses people like you and me today to tell others that they must come to the king. Christian, we have come to the king. It really happened. This is not just mystery. This is not just novelty. It happened, and it changes everything. Praise God for it. Let's pray and ask for his help to believe this and to live in light of it. Oh, again, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your coming and we thank you for that star. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for those odd seekers who sought and found. Lord, we want to come to you today afresh, perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the one millionth time coming with nothing in our hands to give to you in order to get something from you, but coming and again giving all that we have. I know we do it half-heartedly. I know we do it sometimes reluctantly. I know we do it holding back some, but Lord, we want more to be given to you, more of your honor to be seen in this world. We want more worshipers to come in. So help us now as we listen to singing, pondering again with even greater wonder and mystery that story of the birth, not listening to it with sentimentality, but with meaning, substance, and worship, because the King has come. Amen.